Welcome to the Bardcast. It's Shakespeare, you dick, and happy 2020. We are your hosts. I am Lisa Ann Goldsmith. And I am Owen Thompson. Happy New Year. Happy Good New Year. Good riddance to 2021. Yeah, same same as 2021 and 2020. With uh, we'll be saying the same fucking thing a year from now. That's true. Uh, that's true. Omicron is going crazy. Uh, but actually, that's kind of perfect because today's yes. episode is diseased Shakespeare. In the spirit of Omicron and all things COVID, we have decided to discuss diseases in Shakespeare's time. And oh boy, weren't they a lot of fun. That's right. And now if you're if you're a longtime listener, you will remember that our very third episode uh, right at the beginning was Plague Shakespeare. Wasn't and that our we were, second one? Was it? No, I think it was. I think it was number two. No, you're right. It was number two. Number three was. Like, who the fuck remembers? <laughs> it's been, <laughs> we we have a, a disease. Lot. We can't remember. <laughs> um. Uh, so we so we will talk about some of the stuff we talked about. That plague Shakespeare obviously was specifically about the bubonic plague, but there's so much more, you guys, because oh, yes. yeah, sickness was a real threat during the Elizabethan era. I mean, with illness around every corner and the constant threat of censorship, it's no wonder that Shakespeare included mysterious deaths, like in The Winter's Tale. There was no way to hide from sickness, and it affected everyone from the poor to the royal class. You know, Shakespeare plays are kind of a window on human affliction and its treatments in the late 1500s and early 1600s, an age when medical science was kind of an oxymoron. Yeah, and... to say the least. I mean, it sucked donkey balls, basically. Come yeah, on, don't get sick. Right? And, you know, gleeful germs had the run of both the king's household and the peasant's hovel. Um, some people in Shakespeare's time believed that disease was a punishment for sinful behavior. Uh, if that's the truth, Owen, oh, you and I would be down. Well, forget it. Now. We're done. Well, yeah, but I mean, we discussed this in Plague Shakespeare. But for instance, uh, even though they kind of wisely closed places like the playhouses during outbreaks of plague, they did not do anything about curtailing church service because people thought you could not get the plague when you were in a state of, quote unquote, grace. So if you were worshiping in church, you couldn't get sick. Wow, that <laughs> sounds familiar, <laughs> huh? Holy shit. Anyway, um, other people thought that uh, disease resulted from the movement of the stars and the planets. And at the time, rubbish littered the streets. Residents emptied chamber pots out of the windows with yeah, can, you know, can feces we, can we just, and pee in can, them. Yeah, and... Thank you. Thank you. We need to clarify rubbish because the streets were basically open running sewers. That's right. That's right. Um, brothels, incubated syphilis, you know, like you said, dung clogged the gutters and the waterways. Flies and rodents carried bacteria and viruses from one part of the city to another. Hygiene was almost non-existent. I mean, even the queen bathed only once a month. So. Right. Right. Um, at the time, the most relevant source of medical information was that that had been passed down from Aristotle and Hippocrates. Uh, their belief was that the human body was comprised of four bodily humors or fluids, and these four had to remain in balance. Uh, and if they didn't, it triggered illness by creating this intolerable imbalance in these four vital fluids. And they were blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile. They were called humors, which is from a Latin word for liquids. 
and they thought that these fluids controlled health and human behavior. And uh, Hippocrates developed it into this medical theory that when a body produced too much or too little of a humor, if the humor altered its consistency or ventured beyond the normal location in the body, illness resulted. Now, I love this, okay? They have specific things that happens when one of these specific humors is out of whack. So persons in whom the humor blood was the dominant humor were kind, loving, merry, enthusiastic, and passionate. Those ruled by the humor phlegm were sluggish, apathetic, cowardly, and dull-witted. Persons right, and, more, and those those people would be called phlegmatic, and the people dominated by blood would be called sanguine. I that's believe. right. That's correct. And then persons dominated by yellow bile were stubborn, impatient, vengeful, and easy to anger. And those dominated by black bile were melancholic, depressed, irritable, brooding, and cynical. So, uh, when one of these, uh, one of these people got an illness or a physical ailment and it was manifested, it was an indication that the fluids were out of balance. So, uh, a big solution at the time and what a lot of the physicians, physicians of the time followed was to bloodlet, which constituted a process of using either leeches or cutting a patient to release a certain amount of blood until the disease was bled out. Now, obviously, unfortunately, this was completely inaccurate and led to many other diseases, um, as well as that, that single disease getting worse or just simply continuing to spread. The medical provisions of the time were subpar. The unsanitary conditions of surgery or bloodletting didn't help in the health or prevention of other diseases infecting their patients. Yeah. So imagine, you know, you've got a cold and the solution is, well, we'll just cut you and let you bleed a little bit. Yeah, man, that sounds like fun. Yeah, exactly. We should say that they're actually in, in, in Shakespeare's England. Um, there there was uh, the Royal College of Physicians that was established in 1518. Uh, and they were I think they got their charter to practice to like learn anatomy by carving up dead bodies. in I want to say 1565. I believe. So medical science was sort of beginning to resemble a science by the time yeah. Shakespeare was around, yeah. but kind of just beginning. They were still putting leeches on you and guessing a lot, guessing an awful That's lot. That's right. Like their whole thing was that they wanted to rid the body of these humoral excesses by like we said, bloodletting, but also they would administer concoctions to induce vomiting spells or diarrhea. Um, and, you know, if they were going to try to induce a bowel movement, the patient could choose from oral laxatives or enemas. They were better at things like enemas and, and emetics in general, like inducing vomiting or, you know, cleaning you out as it were than they were at a lot of other things back then at least because and that actually can have some benefit you know like purging people that's true um, that's true well they knew the, they knew a lot about like the herbs and stuff of the time they knew what right. would cause vomiting but god, but god forbid you break a bone oh my god well we'll get into that in a minute but i want to say that they also used a variety of preparations with ingredients ranging from animal poop and ground gemstones, including emeralds, sapphires, garnets, and topaz, probably only for the rich, to licorice, mint, rosemary, and basil. 
Um, mint used, they used mint to soothe stomach aches. Lavender was used to ease headaches. Licorice and comfrey were used for respiratory issues. Um, and even though they didn't cure, they did temporarily comfort patients in pain and improve their living qualities for a little while. Patients themselves often prayed for a miraculous cure. They would touch their bodies with the relics of saints, or they went on pilgrimages. A uh, few turned to religious rites to rid the body of demons. <laughs> so fucked up. God. Well, yeah, and there were superstitions about certain people that had potential healing powers, like uh, touching, like there was a, that, that disease called scrofula that supposedly the king's touch That's could right. cure you of. Like the King of England supposedly had a magic power that could cure you of this one special disease. And also sometimes people would hang around after, uh, pardon the pun, after a hanging or an execution, hoping to be touched by the hand of the executioner himself or the hangman, because that was also thought to have healing powers by some people. Yeah, bullshit, bullshit. (laughs) Well, but but think about the situation that they're living in. I mean, uh, you know, you're clutching at straws, sure, but anything because there's no you can't just you know dial up web md oh my or, god or they were or zoc doc yeah i mean they were totally grasping at straws i mean they would treat the buboes and bubonic plague with poultices of butter onion and garlic like they're making you into some sort of a dinner or something i, I mean granted butter onion and garlic is always nice Delicious. but maybe you know maybe not spread on your bubo no but they also <laughs> other treatments involve tobacco arsenic for fuck's sake lily root dried toad that's so crazy um head pains were also treated with rose lavender sage and bay just... stomach pains were treated with wormwood mint and balm Lung illnesses were treated with licorice and comfrey, and sometimes open wounds were flushed with vinegar because they believed that vinegar killed disease. Oy. And you know, vinegar probably was cleansing, but yeah, like let's, you see that, that open wound like you have? Fuck. Let's just pour some vinegar on that. That's great. Mm-hmm. Isn't that what they did to Christ for, you know, when he was on the cross? Didn't they pour vinegar on his wounds, supposedly? Not that he uh, existed, but you I know what know. I mean. I'm a in the story. <laughs> In the story, in the story. <laughs> but, you know, I, can I just take a moment? And I, I don't think it can be emphasized enough just how disgusting Shakespeare's London must have been. Oh, my God. With the, I mean, can you imagine with the with, you know, the 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 feces everywhere and like the rats and the, the vermin of all kinds every with nobody taking a bath ever. I always, you know, every time I'm tempted to think, oh, if only I had a time machine, I would travel back in time to merry old England and Shakespeare's London and attempt and attend opening night of Hamlet. I think of how badly it must have smelled. And then I'm good. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I mean, like I would do I it, honestly... but I would, I would do it, but I would bring a little purse with like, um, you know, antibiotics and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, but just, you, you know what? For my you own know how you have, to, you have to be inoculated to go to certain parts of the world. Yes, you would need yes. like more inoculations than you can. Because seriously, in Shakespeare's London, I always imagine you could get syphilis by opening the window. Probably, it's kind of amazing that he never got the plague. Well, that he, yeah, that's true. Or if he did, he was he didn't get the serious kind. Or if um, he did, he was a not an asymptomatic carrier. Right. So it's possible that he did. We'll never know. But it is it is true. And and you can speak to this. Bubonic plague is only one of three varieties of plague, and it's actually the least dangerous. 
That's right. That's right. Now, the bubonic plague, and uh, again, we're going to repeat a little bit of this info to catch people up. It killed at least one third of the population. Um, it was hypothesized to have spread by rats in the streets and the fleas or lice that traveled with them uh, due to the bacillus Yersinia pestis. And something that I remember from our plague Shakespeare is that what would happen is that the flea would bite the rat, it would get the Yersinia pestis, and then it would bite a human and vomit the Yersinia pestis back into the human, which is how they would get the plague. Think about how fucking disgusting that is. Okay, okay. Can I, can I, since we're, since we're going there, can I talk about typhus just for a minute? You can. Do you want to finish I'm, up? Let's, let's finish up bubonic plague first. Okay, but it, I, but it's such a nice segue, but go ahead. Okay, well, let's finish up the plague, and then we have something to look forward to on Typhus. <laughs> um, okay, so, yes, one sign of bubonic plague uh, were, were the buboes, which were black patches on the skin. Um, plague ravaged the city of London between 1592 and 1603. The infected people burned with incredibly high fevers. Uh, they suffered bouts of vomiting, insomnia, delirium. They shivered incessantly. They sweated alternately. Um, so there were three types, right? One was the bubonic plague, which caused these buboes, these painful swellings in the lymph nodes of the armpits and the groin. The second type was pneumonic plague, which filled the lungs with fluid. And the third was septicemic plague, which poisoned the bloodstream. Sometimes one form of the disease would kill by itself, and at other times it would progress into another one of the forms before claiming a victim. So together, the three manifestations of the plague were known as the Black Death because of the livid black hue of corpses caused by subcutaneous hemorrhaging. In fact, one of the most distinguished physicians of the time, William Gilbert, who was the physician to Queen Elizabeth I, and after her death to King James I, died of the plague in 1603. Irony strikes the unwary. Right? It was one of the most devastating pandemics in human history, uh, resulting in the deaths of an estimated 75 to 200 million people in Eurasia. Um, and analysis of DNA from people in northern and southern Europe recently, this is interesting, indicate that the pathogen responsible was the Yersinia pestis bacterium, like definitively. Mm. Hmm. Right. Interesting. Well, also, it kept coming the fuck back. Right. I mean, it, it, it was cyclical and nobody knew when it would strike. I mean, it. it, it Gee, that actually, sounds it, familiar. <laughs> yeah. Right. Wow. A giant outbreak happened in Shakespeare's time right after he was born, just a few months after he was born and killed. I think it was a quarter of Stratford. Right. That's and right. And again, it happened. It happened early in his career in 1592 and 93 <clears throat> when it's supposed the close the playhouse closes. The Playhouse is closed, <clears throat> and it's assumed that that's when Shakespeare must have written some of his narrative poetry. That's right. And then, of course, it came back later in the 1600s, <clears throat> including the year that he probably wrote King Lear along with, I think it's the Scottish play in Antony and Cleopatra. That's right. So, you know, legendarily, he was pretty productive during plague years. Yeah. I mean, they thought that it originated in uh, Central Asia and then it was carried by that by the Oriental rat flea, our little buddy uh, living on the black rats um, to England and other parts of Europe. Uh, it, it is estimated to have killed 30 to 60 percent of Europe's total population. How fucked up is that? 
Well, of course. And, and, you know, they had no idea what was happening. So they could actually be forgiven for thinking it was the end of the world, as many of them did. That's right. They, you know, some of the efforts to contain plague were they they had these people who were called searchers. They were special officials. They were appointed and their duty was to go into houses and search out plague victims. And they were paid a higher rate if the victims were found dead. So crazy. Well, it's all, you know, that makes me think of the incident in Romeo and Juliet. where Exactly, Friar John. Friar John Friar, I mean. we've, and we've talked about this, of course. Friar John can't convey the message from Friar Lawrence about Juliet's fake death, and it ends up with the two kids killing themselves. But, and, and those, so he couldn't deliver his message because the people he was delivering it to were in quarantine. That's right. So they did quarantine people. But it's, it's very interesting that, and odd to me that that's really the only active instance of, of plague in all of Shakespeare's plays. That's and, right. Uh, that's right. It's also it's also interesting. And we'll talk about syphilis, of course, because all the kids are talking about it. But, um, oh, you know, oh. famous, famous, famously, Mercutio says a plague on both your houses. But in the quarto, he says a pox upon thy house. That's right. Which is a totally different animal. And pox is not. You know, they're both bad, but they're not the same thing. That's right. Um, so why don't we go into typhus? What, what, okay, what did you want I got to tell it, us about I want to talk about typhus. Oh, I talk, talk about typhus. I got to talk about the typhus. Fucking Mary. You were, you were talking about the, the flea vomiting and all of that, which is such so delightful. So typhus, epidemics of louse-born typhus were like they kept coming back too. They ravaged London several times during the reigns of both Elizabeth and James. So body lice, all... people, body lice. Exactly. Lice, body like crabs. Yeah. Um, we talked about the, the filthy conditions and a near total lack of bathing. Uh, so was the cause for this epidemic of body life, which, and this is my favorite part. So these body lice, when scratched, would defecate on a person's skin. Oh. It would take just one minor cut or sore for the typhus-infected feces to enter the victim's bloodstream, and soon high fever, delirium, and gangrenous sores would develop. So the biggest prop, the biggest particular problem with typhus was in prison. Uh, prisoners, which were mostly beggars, drunks, petty thieves, pamphleteers, right. that kind of thing, uh, they would almost always die before they could serve their full sentences. Also, it is possible that this is how Shakespeare himself died. Um, we'll, nobody will ever know actually what actually caused his own death, but a serious outbreak of typhus, the year he died in 1616, lends credibility to the story that he succumbed to a fever. Yeah, could absolutely. But my, but my favorite part is that these sick lice would be on your body and they would shit on you when you scratch them. <laughs> You scratch them, they shit on you, the shit gets in your blood, and you fucking die. So so think about this, people. You fucking died in Shakespeare's time from parasites shitting on you and vomiting into you. I mean, it really doesn't get more gross than this. <laughs> it really doesn't. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, let's talk about malaria. Malaria uh, was another disease also known as ague, also spread by small insects, specifically mosquitoes. Um, they would suck on a human's bloodstream uh, and they were infected and they would pass it on while they were feeding. Right. Gross. Mm -hmm. um, characterized by chills and shivering, pain in the joints and bones. You know, ague is the fever caused by malaria. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. 
and and that leads to i think it is there more than one shakespeare character named for a disease i don't think so it's mentioned I, a bunch I, of times but we'll get into that later i can only think of sir andrew ague cheek but for That's those right. that don't know that is where that name comes from because he, you know it, it like if you have the ague you could get really thin from you know from poor diet right and you're and you could get a pinched face so Sir Andrew is really skinny, and so he's got a pinched face. And at one point, Sir Toby actually calls him Sir Andrew Ague Face. That's right. But that's where that's where that comes from. That's right. What about syphilis? Delightful syphilis. Yes, also um, known as the pox. Mm-hmm. And some people think that Spaniards carried it home from the Americas in in the early in the last part of the 15th century. I think that's probably 1493. Not. Yeah, 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 yeah. 1493. I think that's unlikely. The diseases really went the other way. That's what we. That's what we brought. We brought the Europeans brought diseases to the American continent, yeah. and we wiped out something like 90 percent of the indigenous population with these diseases because Europeans have been living in horrible urban centers like. London for hundreds of years and and had built up immunities to a lot of these diseases. But the poor Native Americans uh, did not have such immunity. And so they died by the, you know, by the tens of thousands. Yeah, we really fucked them. The pox is is, uh, mentioned in 10 of Shakespeare's plays. All's Well That Ends Well, Cymbeline, Henry IV, Part One. Henry the Fourth, Part Two, Henry V, Hamlet, Love's Labor's Lost, Measure for Measure, Othello, and Pericles. He likes to talk about the pox. Right. Well, you know, he's talking about sex a lot. And, you know, That's that right. that was an unfortunate result. Uh, um, smallpox was another well oh, may I? disease. May I? Please. Yes. Well, I mean, smallpox wasn't eradicated until until many, many years uh, later. But it, my, my favorite part of smallpox was that Queen Elizabeth actually got a bad case of smallpox. And all her children. She, mm-hmm, when right. she was only 29 years old. Um, this was a, a virus that caused high fever, vomiting, excessive bleeding, and pus-filled scabs. Again, with the disgusting pus-filled yummy, scabs yummy. that leave <laughs> deep pitted scars. So, if you're wondering why there are so many depictions of Queen Elizabeth with a lot of makeup on, it's because she wore a very thick lead-based white makeup to cover her smallpox scars and also that she was only 29 when she got smallpox but it left her completely bald and so that that red wig that you see her wearing in many a portrait that's what she wore all the time because she was bald from the age of 29 yeah and let's talk about that makeup actually like women had it really hard you know childbirth they could die in childbirth but also because their makeup contained lead they got way sicker in ways that men never did right and also i mean because it was lead based right and yeah. mercury based so that's right it would it would drive people crazy yeah um <clears throat> so let's talk about the talk about the kind of people that might be trying to help you right like owen mentioned physicians oh. which were would have received an education at the college of physicians right the usual fee would be a gold coin which is well beyond the means of most people um uh, yeah, definitely right inferior to the physician would be the surgeon the surgeon belonged to the company of the barber surgeons which barbers belonged to too although they were inferior to surgeons um barbers were only allowed to pull teeth or let blood uh someone could go to a barber have a haircut and then a tooth extracted you could also have some blood letting 
which was the service advertised by the spiral red stripe on the barber pole. That's where that comes from. That's where that comes from. Uh, after that would be an apothecary. That was a usual route that most people took uh, to visit the dispenser of drugs, you know. Um, mm -hmm. They belonged to the Grocers Guild and they sold sweets, cosmetics and perfumes as well as drugs. Um, the church, uh, which could really only provide spiritual comfort to the poor. Mm -hmm. There were herbalists, there were exorcists, there was astrologers, sorcerers, there soothsayers. There the local wise women. That's right. That was often the first person contacted by poor people because what were they going to do, you know? Sure. And I'm, I'm willing, I'm actually willing to bet you that some of the best met, well, like quote unquote, best medical attention that you could get probably came from local wise women who had actually seen some shit and dealt with it. Seen some shit and knew what plants to use to at least make you feel yep. better. Yep. So I, I personally would rather go to a wise woman than one of the physicians because I, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't want uh, those leeches put on me. Yeah, I'm totally with you. Let's talk about what the doctors looked like, Owen. Oh, it's fascinating, especially their clothes. Yes. So physicians were often covered from head to toe completely to protect them from coming down with a serious illness. They wore long, dark robes with pointed hoods. Mm -hmm. And the, the mask, they would wear like bird-like masks. was long, long beaks. Beak. Yeah. And the, that beak mask contained special oils like bergamot that allowed them to breathe the same air as the patient without becoming sick. They wore leather gloves and boots. They even had rituals to protect themselves themselves from getting sick. They would wear amulets of dried blood and dried ground up toads around their waists. They would douse themselves in vinegar. They would chew angelica before approaching a victim. Um, and although this sounds kind of like waka waka now, they actually would have protected the Elizabethan physician. Um, the masks would have acted as protection against contracting the disease through breathing the same air, right? And neither rats nor fleas could get through all of the garb that they were wearing. Mm -hmm. so, so so hmm wear your mask ma motherfuckers wearing, wearing masks <laughs> even then actually worked a eh? hmm okay very interesting how some things never changed um yeah but i mean if you if guys i i encourage you to just google search like picture of an elizabethan doctor because they look freaky as fuck yeah yeah it's like something out of a scary movie it really is. And imagine, I mean, also with their rituals and their, you know, they're wearing this the bands of dried blood and all this stuff. So it has the feeling as much of a cult as of anything else. Um, and, you know, what with the, the, the belief system that people had back then, it must have been pretty, I mean, I'm sure that people were used to the side of doctors, but still it's got to imagine a, a small child being confronted with this right. monstrous bird looking creature. Right. Um, it all cannot have been a scary. whole lot of fun. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, chanting rituals and shit ah. and throwing leeches on your face, you know, no thanks. Um, so you had talked about broken bones, right? Bones, wounds, abscesses, fractures, they were all treated in unsanitary environments, making conditions worse. Uh, toothaches, the only cure was having it pulled without anesthesia, of course. Amputations mm -hmm. were performed by surgeons and the stump was cauterized with pitch. With pitch, people? Think about that. Anemia was common, as was rheumatism, arthritis, tuberculosis, and dysentery, also known as the flux. Um, the upper classes got uh, gout, and influenza was really common, referred to as the sweating sickness. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, may, I, may I describe one or two particularly uh, disturbing and gross cures? Please do. So, okay. Blisters. Oh, so God. many oh, practitioners God. thought that raising blisters on the skin was a good way of drawing out unwanted humors. We talked about those humors before, right? I and therefore vomit. disease. An anonymous treatise from a 1577 book recommended that the notoriously dangerous green flies known as cantharides, which were actually not flies at all, but small iridescent beetles, which were easily available from local apothecaries for some reason. These were placed in a mortar with vinegar and some breadcrumbs to make a paste, which was applied to the quote, the sore place that is where the most grief is for around seven hours. Once dry, it had to be teased off with the tip of a knife. After the skin blistered, it had to be burst. And as the author explained, quote, with your finger, thrust out the water softly. Ugh. The problem with blisters was that while the pain of the disease was gone, the patients then had to heal from the new sore. Ugh. Can you imagine like going into a Rite Aid and being like, hey, can you give me some beetle and vinegar and shit to put on my... Oh, right. Well, this is, this is even worse. So we're talking, right, in this time, remedies composed of multiple ingredients could also include some really unappealing components. A text published in the 1650s claimed that, and I quote, uh, medicines are taken out of a live man or from a dead man. From a live man, we have hairs, nails, spittle, earwax, milk, seed, blood, menstrual blood, secondines, urine, dung, lice, worms, stone of bladder, and kidneys. From a dead man, skin, fat, skull, brain, teeth, bones, and mummy. Preserved human flesh, that's what mummy means, was found in several medicines, including an unguent to staunch blood recommended in a 1605 medical text by Christoph Wiersung, a German physician. Dead men's flesh didn't always have to be put into medicine. Many people waited at the gallows and hope, this is where the, the hangman's thing comes That's in. right. So many people would wait at the gallows and hope they could have their boils and swellings stroked with the hangman's hands which was thought to have healing properties. Let's so back up would... for a second. I just want to point out that that Owen said seed, which he's talking about jizz, people. Right. Thank you he's very much. I was jizz. about to say the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, mental illness and all of its symptoms was a uh, was commonplace in Shakespeare in London, including depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, gibberish, because treatment was virtually non-existent for the mentally disabled. So most of them just roamed the streets freely for lack of any kind of institutional care. So London, other European cities just teemed with eccentric, paranoid, schizophrenic, you know, all that kind of stuff. And in fact, in his plays, um, both mental and physical illness sometimes inhabit the same character at the same time. Oy. So shall we talk about diseases mentioned in Shakespeare plays? Owen? Wait, wait, I just have one more cure that I have to talk about oh, and then please, we can get into that. Do. Because like, we can't avoid animal shit. No, well, who can avoid animal no, no, Well, you kind of can't avoid it in general, but at least you can avoid having it put on you, oh, usually. God. But it wasn't, so it wasn't just parts of the human body and products that were used in medicines. Plasters sometimes contained um, some, shall we say, other ingredients. Uh, dung, or as it's commonly known, shit, usually from a cow, formed the main component of several plasters recommended to ease swelling. Andrew Board's Breviary of Health, for example, suggested a remedy made of goat dung and honey. 
Again, Christoph Wiersung, that same guy, he had a medical text that suggested a plaster of bayberries mixed with goat's dung to ease the dropsy, a disease characterized by watery swelling of the stomach. So, oh my God. You know, it was just, it was a special time to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So um, where does Shakespeare talk about these diseases? Well, because I just talked about the fact that both mental and, mental and physical illness were sometimes in the same character, let's start with Richard III, right? Because Richard exhibits symptoms of kyphosis, which is a hunchback, and psychopathy, which is a social and amoral behavior, which kind of shape him into kind of a grotesque killing machine. I mean, in the opening lines of the play, he soliloquizes on his appearance and his mindset, you know, the, but I that am not shaped for sportive tricks nor made to court an amorous looking glass. I that am rudely stamped and want love's majesty to strut before a wanton ambling nymph. I that am curtailed of this fair proportion, cheated of feature by dissembling nature, deformed, unfinished, sent before my time into this breathing world, scarce half made up, and that so lamely and unfashionable that dogs bark at me as I halt by them. Why, I, in this weak piping time of peace, have no delight to pass away the time, unless to spy my shadow in the sun and discant on mine own deformity. And therefore, since I cannot prove a lover, to entertain these fair, well-spoken days, I am determined to prove a villain, and hate the idle pleasures of these days. Plots have I laid, inductions dangerous, by drunken prophecies, libels, and dreams. And what, you know, obviously this is a neat piece of propaganda on Shakespeare's part, as we all know. That's right. To, to vilify the, you know, the, the king that came before the dynasty of, of Elizabeth. Uh, and was in fact her grandfather that had defeated him. But we do know now, and I think we've mentioned this in, in some other episodes, that uh, they actually found Richard's bones in a parking lot in Leicester in, in England about 10 years ago. And uh, they have determined that he did, in fact, have scoliosis. That's right. So he, he was, I mean, deformed is a harsh word, but he, there there is some basis for the physical depiction of Richard, if not the psychological. Well, that's right. And also scoliosis has, you know, it's a very varying on how badly of course. it shapes your spine. So, Of course. But, but at least, but what I'm saying is at least there is now some verification that there was something, some, I mean, there, there, that he had a, a physical condition that some might have called a hunchback. That's right. That's right. Um, so let's talk a little bit about some more things that are mentioned in Shakespeare. I mean, he excelled in identifying and describing afflictions of the body, <laughs> such as scurvy, gout, epilepsy, rheumatism, venereal disease, blah, blah, blah. Um, he kind of exhibits surprising insights into medicine in his 37 plays. He mentions practically all the diseases and medicines that were known in the Elizabethan and Jacobean times, which I think is kind of amazing. Yeah, um, well, and all, he has that list that Farrah Lawrence, you know, when Farrah Lawrence has that speech about the properties of different herbs and plants and that's all right. that kind of thing. That's right. Uh, the Black Plague is mentioned in King Lear when Lear is describing Goneril. And he mm -hmm. says, but yet thou art my flesh, my blood, my daughter, or rather a disease that's in my flesh, which I must needs call mine. Thou art a boil, a plague sore, an embossed carbuncle in my corrupted blood. 
nice. Can you imagine your dad talking about you like that? I got to I, I got to say though, that's a pretty good description of fucking Goneril. It is. She's kind of a crunt. <laughs> I have to say, <laughs> true. Um, in time and of Athens, Lisa Ann said it, not me. I said C R U N T. Oh, in that case, crunt. That's right. That's a crazy. <laughs> whatever all right where was i yes in time of Athens, um shakespeare hints about the treatment of syphilis that queen elizabeth herself used the inhalation of vaporized mercury salts he says give them diseases leaving with thee their lust make use of thy salt hours season the slaves for tubs and baths bring down rose-cheeked youth to the tub fast and the diet uh typhus was a huge problem for prisoners right like like you were saying, people in the Nougat uh-huh. jail would die before they could even yep. serve their sentences. Yep. Um, and in Henry the Sixth, Part Two, uh, they say if we mean to thrive and do good, break open the jails and let out the prisoners. Yeah, because those poor people, like the lice, had been shitting on them. I just can't emphasize that enough. <laughs> Clearly, this is one of Owen's favorite parts of this episode. Lice, lice shitting on shitting you. on you. <laughs> Um, in the Tempest, Caliban describes the process of malaria while cursing Prospero. He says, all the infections that the sun sucks up from bogs, fens, flats on Prosperfall and make him by inch meal a disease. Um, Hotspur in Henry the Fourth, Part One also talks about malaria, says, worse than the sun in March, this praise doth nourish agues. There's um, that ague again. That's right. Um, In one single scene in Troilus and Cressida, Act 5, Scene 1, there's a long list of diseases that people were subject to. Um, They say, now the rotten diseases of the South, the guts griping ruptures, catars, loads of gravel of the back lethargies, cold palsies, raw eyes, dirt rotten livers, wheezing lungs, bladders full of impostume, which is an abscess, sciaticas, Lime kills in the palm, which is arthritis, incurable bone ache, and the riveling free simple, which is permanent ownership of the letter eruption, of the tetter, sorry, eruption. Nice. Nice. That Troilus and Cressida. That's a fun right, Well, one. I mean, in, in Troilus and Cressida, there's a char- Pandarus, one of the main characters, is dying of syphilis. That's right. That's right. Um, in Henry the Fourth, Part Two, Northumberland, who has uh, come down with a fever, describes the principles. Now, this, I think this is really interesting. Behind immunization, when he receives bad news from the battlefield, he says, "In poison there is physic, and these news having been well, that would have made me sick. Being sick, have in some measure made me well." Isn't that fucking hmm. crazy? That like that is Shakespeare crazy. was like, we should all get immunized, right? Well, I mean, you know, obviously, and we've talked about this as well, even even though there are surprisingly few mentions of plague as you're as you are enumerating, there's all these mentions, these rather sophisticated mention uh, mentions of diseases and cures and medical knowledge is imparted quite a bit by Shakespeare. So this is one of the reasons why so many people feel that Shakespeare couldn't have written his plays because he displays far too much knowledge of medicine. And they also say, and it, it is true that the plays show a great knowledge of medicine. They show a great knowledge of law. They show a great knowledge of military tactics and that kind of thing. So the, the simple explanation to me has always been that he was just a fucking genius and could yeah. pick this stuff up. Yeah. But, but it, it, he does, he does seem to know an awful lot about doctor stuff. 
He does. In fact, besides the fact that he talks about immunization, he talks about the fact that somebody can be asymptomatic because in The Winter's Tale, Camillo presents this revolutionary concept that a person can carry and spread illness even though he or she remains disease-free. He says, there is a sickness which puts some of us in distemper, but I cannot name the disease, and it is caught of you that yet are well. That's crazy shit. Yeah. Yeah. And then in Richard III, after Hastings informs Richard that the king is languishing with a fatal illness, Shakespeare calls attention to the importance of nutrition in these lines spoken by Richard. He says, oh, he, the king, hath kept an evil diet long and overmuch consumed his royal person. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think that uh, it was pretty common to see, especially people that wealthy, like basically eating and drinking themselves to death. I mean, that had happened to Edward that's being described there. It certainly happened to Elizabeth's father, Henry. That's right. You know, Henry VIII, who probably died of syphilis, but also had all kinds of horrible diseases because um, he ate and drank and had sex way too much. That's right. Um, he talks about mental illness, depression, and melancholia in many plays. For example, in the opening lines of Merchant of Venice, Antonio is melancholic. He doesn't know why, and he's unable to sort of shake it off. And he says, in sooth, I know not why I am so sad. It wearies me. You say it wearies you. But how I caught it, found it, or came by it, what stuff tis made of, whereof it is born, I am to learn. And such a want which sadness makes of me that I have much ado to know myself. I mean... Well... And then, you, you you know, Hamlet, for God's sake, is known as the melancholy Dane. Yeah. Oh, my God. And he contemplates suicide. And, you know, some of the time it's hard to know because when he, if he's talking to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern when he says, I have of late, but wherefore I know not lost all my mirth and all that famous stuff. That's kind of hard to parse because how much is he just fucking with them? That's right. But he also talks about like medical stuff because he underscores the importance of uh, your heartbeat being a measure of well-being when he says to Gertrude, my pulse as yours doth temperately keep time and makes his healthful music. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking about Shakespeare referring to ague in plays and Julius Caesar. Caesar tells Caius Ligarius, Caesar was ne'er so much your enemy as that same ague with had, which hath made you lean. In King John, Constance, lamenting the fate of her son, says, But now will canker sorrow eat my bud and chase the native beauty from his cheek, and he will look as hollow as a ghost, as dim and meager as an ague's fit. I mean, that's crazy talk. Um, Well, also, I mean, speaking of of mental health, um, you know, in, in the Scottish play, when the doctor is telling Big Mac about the late, I'm just going to say Macbeth. I know, I know. Angels and Ministers of Grace Defenders. No, uh, sorry. <laughs> the, the <laughs> Macbeth wants the doctor to cure Lady Macbeth of her mental disease. That's right. And, and you know, and he has a lengthy speech where he instructs the doctor to do so. And the doctor simply says, therein the patient must minister to himself. Um, That's right. Which, you know, I mean, just goes to show you that uh, uh, this was many centuries before Freud. That's right. And I mean, there's other places in Hamlet, too, right? Like, you know, when he when they when he says he's putting on an antic disposition. Right. 
right? In Lear, I mean, I can, clearly... When the, I can tell a hawk from a handsaw, all of that stuff. That's right. And in Lear, I mean, Lear clearly exhibits well, Lear what goes, appears to be symptoms yes. of dementia, you know, possibly yeah. Alzheimer's or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, Lady Mac sleepwalks, right? And com- repeatedly washes her hand to cleanse them of guilt, you know, which mm-hmm. leads us to insomnia, right? Which is a chronic in- inability. Yeah, to... I mean, it's possible that, that both she and Macbeth are suffering from PTSD. That's right, which would lead us to hallucination, right? There, mm-hmm. I mean, he clearly is hallucinating when he says, is this a dagger which I see before me, the handle toward my hand? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, sure. And she's hallucinating, well, even though she's asleep, she's hallucinating uh, in in that scene towards the end. That's right. Macbeth also talks about fits, right? Like It's, a... it, it's completely possible that he's hallucinating when he sees Banquo. Oh, absolutely. And she says, Lady Macbeth says about that, sit worthy friends, my Lord is often thus and hath been from his youth. Pray you keep seat. The fit is momentary upon a thought he will again be well. I mean, but, you know, it's we've talked about obviously we've talked about ghosts in in other on other episodes. But who 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 else sees the ghost is really important to me anyway. You know, I mean, Macbeth sees Banquo, but nobody else does. That's right. That's much as much as Hamlet sees the ghost in the Queen's closet scene. But Gertrude doesn't see the ghost. And yet earlier in the play, Horatio and the other soldiers do see the ghost. That's right. That's right. Um, another bodily condition to which uh, Shakespeare refers is emaciation, right? In Richard, again, in Richard II, he alludes to it in an exchange between King Richard and John of Gaunt, in which Gaunt uses a pun on his name to describe his wasted appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, gout, you know, acute recurring arthritis that inflames and swells joints, particularly that in the feet and hands. Um it's mentioned in As You Like It, Cymbeline, Henry the Fourth, Part Two, Measure for Measure, and Two Noble Kinsmen. I mean, it's this stuff is all through Shakespeare. It Hysteria, sure right? In Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, uh, Ophelia is divided from herself, as Claudius observes. Right? She's mm-hmm. she's waka waka. Um, <laughs> Don't get too technical now. Well, she is waka waka. Uh, leprosy. Right, that that wildly infectious bacterial disease of the skin and et cetera, et cetera, with skin lesions and eye inflammation. Queen Margaret refers to leprosy in Henry VI, Part Two, when she says, Be woe for me, more wretched than he is. What, dost thou turn away and hide thy face? I am no loathsome leper. Look on me. And also, uh, Antony and Cleopatra and Timon of Athens also recur, also refer to leprosy. Um, pox is all through it, right? Oh my God. Um, a pox upon him, all's well that ends well. Um, rheumatism is referred to. It's kind of a catch all. Well, pox, pox also became, a, it was so common that That's pox right. became like a reflexive thing to a pox on this, a pox on that, a yeah, pox on yeah, you. Yeah. Just became a reflexive insult or exclamation in the time. That's right. Um, um, in Merry Wives of Windsor, Anne Page, and complimenting Sir Hugh Evans. Uh, describes the weather as conducive to rheumatism. She says, and youthful still in your doublet and hose this raw rheumatic day. Um, in Henry the Fourth, Part Two, Mistress quickly uses rheumatic in a simile when she addresses Falstaff and Doll Tearsheet. She says, by my troth, this is the old fashion. You two never meet, but you fail to some discord. You are both of the good truth as rheumatic as two dry toasts. You cannot one bear with another's conformities. Um, scurvy. 
That's a big one, right? In Twelfth Night, thou art but a scurvy fellow. Uh, references to scurvy also appear in All's Well That Ends Well, King Lear, Romeo and Juliet, The Tempest, Othello, Troilus and Cressida, and The Two Noble Kinsmen. Um, it's all over it the place. It just goes, well, sure. Yeah. That's uh, that's pretty much what I got that's of. Pretty, that's pretty comprehensive, I think. We've talked about diseases. We've talked cures. We've talked doctors. We've talked about lice shitting and fleas <laughs> puking. We've <laughs> talked about everything. Lice shitting on you. <laughs> oh it my happened, God, people. You, guys, you know, with with the pandemic the way it is now, you have to laugh. You know what I mean? Literally, least, I know fifteen least, people have tested positive in the last. Week. Me too, but but no, but no fleas have vomited on them, as far as I know. As far as you know, that's true. That's I, right. Uh, I'm not in their homes. I have any really lice? Say. Have any lice shit on you? Um, no comment. <laughs> Yeah, let's wrap this one up. Um, so, you guys, come on over and visit our website at www.thebardcastudick.com. There are places to donate to wonderful charities, uh, Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS or the Actors Fund. Um, or to us. Or to us. We have a link to PayPal or to our Patreon.com page. But, guys, shows are, even though, though they reopened, they're closing again. And it's a really hard time for all kinds of performers. Um, uh, please uh, leave us a review on uh, whatever platform you get your podcasts. We love five stars, but if you write something, that would be awesome. If you've and write to of, us. Write to us at, yes, the broadcast you dick at gmail.com. We love hearing from everybody. If you have anything to tell us, if you have any more information about fleas, puking or lice shitting or whatever or any or any requests of things that you would like us to talk about that's right we would love to take requests for future podcast topics um i think that's it owen is that it that's that's all folks and remember remember it's it's shakespeare Shakespeare, you dick The preceding podcast was a production of Country Matters, LLC, copyright 2022, all rights reserved.